everybody, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. My name is Joe Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the one, the only, the Jordan Angeli. Jordan, we took last week off, which was my fault and my doing, uh, but now we're back after a week of hopefully being refreshed. How are you? I'm good. It's not your fault, Joe. Like, can, <laughs> okay. we, can we give Joe a, a break, guys? Like, He's pretty much talking about every soccer game that's happening right now, so um, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you got to go on vacation, and I do feel a little refreshed. It feels like I haven't talked to you in forever, so I'm excited about this, and what better way to come back into action than to see what people want us to talk about? Oh, absolutely. Questions. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for saying nice things about me. Um, vacation was very nice. I'm trying to find, here we go. Warren on Twitter sent us a message, yeah. uh, like Tuesday of last week or Wednesday and said, at MLS Assist Pod, no show this week, question mark. And that message made me so happy because Warren, mm. we appreciate you refreshing your feed, yeah. maybe hoping that there'd be a show. Either way, we're back now and we appreciate you uh, and everyone else who listens to this show for asking about us. Yeah. But yes, Jordan, like you said, we are here to do listener questions, which is perfect, right? Because we didn't really have MLS games this weekend. We had some midweek, and I know, Jordan, you called the Cruz game against FC Cincinnati on Friday. But as I said, no games over the weekend. Gold Cup's going on. The Euros just finished. Copa America just finished on Saturday. Euros on Sunday. Gold Cup started on Saturday. There's a lot going on, but we're zeroing in on MLS. We've got five questions, Jordan. Also, just with that note, like I cried so many times this weekend for soccer and like games because <laughs> sports are cool yeah. and moments of, you know, whether it was Messi winning, you know, falling to his knees and winning that, you know, championship that yeah. he has yet to have with Argentina or, um, seeing people step up in really big moments, young players for England step up and, and willing to take a penalty shot, you know, like I, it makes me so proud for them, even though it didn't go in their their direction. And even on on Friday with MLS and the the crew, just the reactions to Miguel Barry scoring his first MLS goal. Like sports are cool, and um, I think that it's important to focus on the good things that are happening in them and really promote that because I know it can get really dark, but there's some so much good too. Oh, and yeah. um, gosh, it was just. I was in tears too many times. <laughs> <laughs> I want to add one thing to the potential tear-worthy moments. Busio, I talked about it on the Total Soccer Show, but Gianluca Busio <laughs> getting on the field for the U.S., just the crowd at Children's Mercy Park. I usually, I'm not as, I don't know, emotion-filled sometimes when I watch soccer, which is kind of a bummer, right? Because I take some of the emotion out of it to do this and to do different things. But just hearing them chant his name as he's getting ready to come in and then oh. cheer their lungs out for him every time he takes a touch. That was just so, so cool. So cool and I loved it. So, Joe, I tweeted about that because I don't know. Have you seen Hook? The movie I Hook? haven't seen. I haven't seen Hook. Oh, my gosh. You have to go watch Hook because there is a character in Hook and it's all about Peter Pan and going back to Neverland. And there is this guy named Rufio, and his, the chant they do is Rufio, Rufio, Rufio. Hmm. <laughs> And I was like, is that the chant they're doing for Busio? And lo and behold, the people from Sporting Kansas City have the best chant I think I've ever heard with <laughs> Busio doing that. Um, so hats off to them. That was amazing to hear. And um, I got a lot of like remarks back on Twitter like, yep, that you're right, Jordan. So <laughs> I, I loved that. I just wrote Hook down in my notes. So I will watch that at some point yes. and okay, get back perfect, to you. Perfect. I'll evaluate the chant similarity. <laughs> 
Um, Okay, Jordan, let's get into these questions. This first one is Gold Cup related, so it's fitting. It's from Nick who asks, who do you expect to have their stock rise while players are away for the Gold Cup? John Strong and Stu Holden said on the broadcast for the U.S. game last night, there are nearly 60 players, 60 MLS players at this tournament. So we had a lot of players to choose from, but weirdly, Jordan, I think we both kind of had a hard time coming up with answers for this one. Maybe not a ton yeah. of like super high profile guys leaving that creates an opportunity for a young and up and coming player. Just not a lot of mm. perfect elevated situations for some of these guys. But I know you saw the couple answers. I do as well. I'm turning it to you first, Jordan. Who you got? I'm going to go to the LA Galaxy. Because they have Sebastian Legette gone. They have Jonathan Dos Santos gone. Two big pieces in their midfield. So the first player I'm going with is Adam Saltania mm. from LA Galaxy. He's a young player, 19 years old. I, th- I think he's still 19. Um, he, we saw him play a few games. He's had 10 appearances, three starts this year. Um, but he started off as the six at the beginning of the season. I think you can recall we've talked, we talked about him a little bit yeah. at the beginning of the year. Um, He's good. And I, I think when you're talking about a six, you have to have the grit and the ability to uh, break up plays and sit, especially in a Greg Vanny system, sit and really allow the, the players in front of you to do a lot of the creative work. But I think he could fill in that spot for Jonathan Dos Santos. He's young. He's now had a few months under Greg Vanny playing in that system, but also playing at the pace. I think the thing that was hard for him at the beginning of the year is the pace was a little bit too high for him. So he would lose the ball in certain situations, whether it was at his feet with just too much pressure or not passing hard enough. That was the thing that I noticed when I went back and watched some of his clips is he just needs to ping the ball in a little bit harder when he's switching the point of attack. But this is a player who has the opportunity in an LA Galaxy squad who seems to be rolling right now and playing some good football overall to sit in and use that experience that he's he's gained over the last few months and to fill a spot that's going to be really important mm-hmm. for them. So that was the one player that I really honed in on. I love that, Jordan, because you're right. The Galaxy... They're missing players. They're missing Dos Santos, as you said, mm-hmm. and Legette, too. Both guys who have played deeper down in midfield. Legette more recently playing, I think, a little deeper with Dos Santos playing a couple friendlies for Mexico before the Gold Cup even started. So there are opportunities for Saldana, for maybe even one or two other guys to really step up and get some minutes and maybe stake a claim for a starting spot at some point this season. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good one. I want to stay in the Western Conference. My, I think the one that I'm most proud of in this answer uh, is Kellen Rowe with Christian Roldan gone from the Seattle Sounders. Rowe's already been a starter for the Sounders over stretches of the season because Seattle is just devastated by injuries, as a number of other teams are in Major League Soccer. But I, I think this could be really a-, a real opportunity for him to come in and stay in that midfield for the next two, three, four weeks and make that spot his own and maybe even continue to start and have Schmetzer tweak something or just have him be a regular starter in that system going forward. I just, I like Kellen Rowe and he's been back. He sort of go against Houston this past week. I think he's a very good player and he fits this simple but effective sounder system so well. I think he could be a guy to watch for the next few weeks. Yeah. I might talk about him later in this oh. episode. I think, oh, I maybe. see. little yeah. teaser there. Um, the, yeah. Um, a couple other players that I thought too, Joe, I don't, I, I'm not jumping in. Am I? Are you no, 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 you're good. A couple other players. Um, 
I think with the absences in Colorado, I think Cole Bassett's role is going to be even bigger. It's not only Kellen Acosta gone, it's Eunice Nomley, it's Jack Price in and out with some injuries as of late. So can Cole Bassett really be a central player in that midfield? Um, he's going to have to carry a bigger load. And I think that um, now is the time with all the talk about Cole Bassett over the last few years. Uh, if he can do that, it can really boost his ticket value, really. Um, and then the other one I thought of is Toronto FC. Uh, man, they got a, they have a lot of players gone, important players. Uh, Ralph, is it Preso or Preso? Yeah, I've heard it as Preso, yeah. Preso. I think Preso is a good player. We've seen it. I saw him play a little bit in Champions League. He played, you know, he's, he plays on and off in their midfield. I really do think with, um, Osorio gone and I don't know who they're going to replace for Richie Lorea. If you have an idea about mm. that, go ahead and uh, put it out there. <laughs> but I think, uh, gosh, I already forgot. Preso? Yeah, Preso. Either one. We get it. Preso, Preso. No, it's Preso. I need to say it right. Preso is a, a, a player who can come into the midfield, use a little bit of the experience he has. I think he's good. He's, he's solid on the ball. Um, it's just decision making. And the only way that you get better at decision making is, is playing in games. So I think for TFC, this could be a good opportunity to, especially with all the changes happening there right now, maybe give him some confidence in what might be a new looking Toronto side. Hmm. I love that. I love both of those, Jordan. I'm going to go rapid fire here. Edwin Cerillo, potentially okay. with Brian Acosta with Honduras. Another Honduran mm -hmm. uh, swap here. Mason Toy, maybe he's already been starting some for Montreal this year, but with Romel Kyoto gone with Honduras as well at the Gold Cup. I have Griffin Yao and Yamil Assad for DC United without Paul Ariola, who unfortunately went down with an injury last night for the U.S. So that could even be an extended absence potentially for those guys to fill in. And then my last two, Felipe Hernandez. Busio and, and Hernandez haven't been playing the same spot yeah. for SKC, but that's such a crowded midfield. Even taking one number away forces someone else to play the six, and it might be Ilya, and it might not affect Hernandez at all. But it could be someone else and continue to open up minutes for him at one of the eight spots. Yeah, it could be Espinosa dropping back to the six exactly. and putting yeah. Hernandez as one of the, the eights. Yeah. My last one is Sefuentes, Jose Sefuentes for LAFC. He's already been starter, a starter for them and a key player. I think he's been their best number eight this year. But with Mark Anthony mm -hmm. K gone with Canada, he can continue to cement that. And, and the question is about raising their stock. I think he could continue to raise his stock without K, who yeah. is still a more high-profile player just in terms of national coverage than Sefuentes. But I think Sefuentes is excellent and, and has probably been better than K this season. I, I thought of him, but I was like, he's already been so good this year yeah, that I yeah. don't know. I mean, at least consistent, but that's the thing with consistency. You have to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Candy can keep doing it when, um, things just change it, whether it's training environment with players out and, or, or game environments, um, taking advantage of other midfield that might be missing some players due to gold cup absences as well. Okay. So there, Nick, is the answer, or at least our answers to your question. If anybody else has any other thoughts, hit us up on Twitter at MLS Assist Pod. We would love to hear your answers to that question. Jordan, this next one is from Adam Taylor, who asks, what's been the most surprising tactical move this season and why is it advanced playmaking center back Andy Nahar? And really, I, at least I <laughs> use this question as an excuse to talk about Andy Nahar, because we got another one from, I assume, a DC United fan asking uh, about Nahar who has just been phenomenal this season. So I've got a couple other tactical wrinkles to toss in at the end. But first, I want to flip it to you. How good has Andy Nahar been? And how surprising is it that he's been the right center back in a back three under Hernan Losada this season? Well, 
I think I should preface this with I don't I I honestly didn't know much about Andy Nahar before this year. So I think it's mm. been fun kind of learning a little bit more about him and seeing uh wow, the evolution of this Hernan Losada team and really sticking, you know, when you find a coach and you and I talked about Hernan Losada before the season just what he could bring and what type of style and we knew it would potentially be, you know, uh risk reward, right? Being able to Throw some numbers forward, knowing that, okay, we might give some goals up defensively, but we're going to score a lot of goals. And, um, as of late, they've been showing that. And I, I really liked Andy Nahar. And I think there's a few reasons that this works. So I kind of wrote down why, why I feel like Andy Nahar works in this right center back position and why it's working for DC United. Um, Nahar's good on the ball, Joe. And good on the ball, not only on the dribble, but I think in decision making as well. Because in this three five two, or this three back system that really has so many moving parts in front of it, maybe it's a three four two one. It looks very different in in different scenarios. Um, there's constantly space. Is Julian Gressel inside? Well, Nahar occupies that channel. If Gressel is outside, he comes centrally and almost looks like another midfielder. Um, he's good at decision making in those transition moments. And I think that that has been really beneficial. Would you agree that's one of the reasons that this is working? Absolutely. I think he reads the game well and has the skill set to exploit what opportunities are presented to him. You talked about dribbling, decision making. I'll even toss passing in there quickly. Just relative to other center backs, what he can do on the ball, because he has played further forward and wider in the past, getting up that right side for various teams, I think his ability to just use the ball in a number of different ways is hugely valuable to DC. The other reason why I feel like it works, and this is more tactics, is because of the the players around him. Hmm. Uh, Julian Gressel is comfortable in multiple positions. He could play outside back. He could play as a winger. He can play as a central midfielder. So because of that, Gressel floats around and occupies the space he believes is important. From there, then you add in Nahar's decision-making, and those two really work well together. And I, I think it's allowing Julian Gressel to be the player that we've known him to be. And it gives him that other creative player around him, especially going forward. Um, so with also, if Nahar is forward, Gressel covers him. And I think the other part that I want to mention is, as far as the, play, the the people and the pieces around him is Russell Knauss back in the midfield. You know, now, now Lasada has more health to his team. There's healthy players around. And Knauss, when he's in there, um, he is a very intelligent holding midfielder because he, he will get forward. But one of the things he does so well is he reads where Nahar is and he either slides back in between the other two center backs that are in that back three, or he slides and covers Nahar as one of the additional third center backs. So I think without those two pieces, it wouldn't look as fluid. And so it is Nahar and it is a lot that he's doing, but also I think it sets up well with the supporting players around him to be beneficial going forward and a little bit of cover defensively. Yeah, and it is, to go back to Adam's question, it is a surprising move. Like, this isn't something that I mm -hmm. would have expected. And when we talked about earlier <laughs> this season, uh, we were asked a question about fullbacks that could play center back, using Nuhu as kind of the prime example. Nahar is a player we forgot to talk about. So in a sense, it is surprising in a certain way. But also, Jordan, for all the reasons you just mentioned, I love the idea of 
of the players around him helping him excel in that role. I hadn't thought about that. I've been looking too too much at Nahar specifically, but that that right side in the th- I see it mostly as a 3-4-3, but you're right, it is fluid. On the right side of Nahar as the right center back, Russell as the right wing back and Areola as the right winger. Those players, I mean Areola could play right wing back. He could play, I mean he's he can do whatever. And same with Gressel and Nahar clearly is versatile. The balance is just so good on that side, and it allows each player to be uniquely effective. But with Nahar specifically, I pulled some of the stats. He's in the 99th percentile among center backs in Major League Soccer in terms of assists per 90, expected assists per 90, shot-creating actions per 90, progressive passes, progressive carries, dribbles completed per 90. And he has some good <laughs> pressuring defensive numbers. Like he He's doing it all right now. For DC, and yeah. he's set up to do that because he does have the skill set to be more attacking, and it works so well for them. It's been a, I would say, a surprising tactical move and a very smart move by Hernan Lozada to shift him into that spot. Mm-hmm. I agree; it's really working, and um, I I like. You know, I I think we've talked about this before. There's a when you're first learning a new system, it does feel a little bit rigid because you're trying to make the right decisions all the time. And it seems like, you know, maybe not fair to only the, the game I really watched was the game against Toronto because there was some freedom in attack. But it's so it's not fair to only gauge it off of that, but I think what is happening is now everybody knows their roles and you're starting to see this DC United team read the game and say, I know, I know the right decisions, but also that's not the right decision right now. This is better. And you have to have this mixture of knowing your role, but also feeling the game. And it feels like they're starting to get into that groove, which is when you tend to have the best results because a feel for the game is not something you can teach. You just have to, to feel it, to know it, to be in those positions and make those decisions. So, um, yeah, I think they're heading in the right direction, and this is a fun, a fun tactical twist. And just so great to have DC be a fun team. The last couple of years under Ben Olsen, especially post Rooney and Acosta, just really dull from an outsider's perspective, and I imagine even more so from a DC United fan. They're ninth right now in the East, which is not great, but I I see them climbing. I see them climbing up that Eastern Conference table, sneaking into the playoffs, maybe maybe even higher uh, as the season progresses. I do want to throw out just a couple other tactical. Wrinkles are surprising tactical things to hit at the other part of Adam's question. Knew who I had. He's kind of the the foundation of what we've seen a lot of teams do this season, weirdly. Eric Williamson playing as a number six with Diego Chara out, was, I thought was an interesting wrinkle. Just a bunch of teams going to a back three. We talked about that very recently as well. And then uh, there are a bunch more, but the last one I wanted to highlight leads right into our next question, and it's Yuya Kubo playing deeper in midfield for FC Cincinnati. Yapstam made that tweak almost, I think, from the start of this season, not something I expected at all. And that leads in, as I said, to this question from Coach Goff, who says, what is your take on the development of Yuya Kubo as a number six for FC Cincinnati? Does he have the skill set to be elite at that position? That's a high bar. I watched some footage, Jordan, I'm assuming you did as well. What are your thoughts on Kubo playing deeper in midfield, a player who historically has been a front runner? He's been a center forward or playing off of a forward or playing out wide. Now, as I said, Yapstam has put him deeper in midfield. What do you think? Do, is it wrong to for me to say that one of Yuya Kubo's strengths is on the dribble? Like he's good oh, dribbling that's, with the ball yeah, on his feet? I totally agree. Okay. Okay, so that's that's where my mind went, first of all. And, you know, this is fresh in my mind because I called the crew FC Cincinnati game over the weekend, well, at the start of the weekend on Friday. (laughs) 
And one of the things that I really do think is beneficial in putting him in this spot, especially in the transition, is he's good on the dribble. So if you have a six who transitions into an eight and can do that on the dribble, you can bypass a whole line of defense quickly and then get somebody that's good on the ball in in, um, little slip ball situations in an an advanced position with the ball at his feet. So I do feel like that's been one of the things that maybe Yapstam saw in him and saying, oh, maybe we can exploit this area and this potential pocket of space on the dribble with one of our sixes. So um, I think he does that good. That was not good English. (laughs) I think he does that well. Um, To be elite in that six position, you not only have to be able to keep the ball for your team and decision make in those transition moments, but you have to be able to defend. And I think for me, this is one of the struggles that I see with you, Yakubo. So before I go there, what what have you liked about what you've seen from him? Okay, so yeah, I totally agree with your your look at him on the dribble. I think he's dangerous. I think that's what he brings most to that spot. Uh, and and you like that. Eric Williamson has had a ton of success doing that mm-hmm. for Portland this season. Other players, Busio does that for Sporting Kansas City a lot as well. It brings value. It unbalances defenses, and it allows your team to create attacking opportunities. That's all great. Right. I, I'm mixed on Kubo generally because as good as that dribbling skill is, he doesn't really pass the ball forward a lot. Not in, not in a consistent, mm. meaningful way. He'll play some of those slip balls that you're talking about with his right foot. But he doesn't really look to progress the ball very much. He's a little timid on the half turn. He doesn't look very comfortable in that space, which is maybe not his fault, right? That could be... Him just not being a very good fit for that spot. And so Yapstam is maybe not putting him in the best spot to succeed. But I think if he is ever going to be good to very good to elite at that position, he needs to continue to develop his game on the half turn and being able to push forward, scan as the ball comes to him, check his shoulders and play lofted balls or play just more aggressive passes forward. So that's that's my big knock on him offensively. Jordan, I'm turning it back to you. Defensively, it sounds like you're not sold. I'm not sold. I I think he has a really good work rate. And I think that's one of the reasons that he can play in that six. There were so many times in the game on Friday where Kubo came back, like sprinting back and gotten into a confrontation with a player, a challenge, either just poked the ball away, gotten a big tackle, or even scooped the ball off of an attacker for the crew. Good work rate. But my question is, why is he constantly recovering? If you're a six, you don't want your six constantly being in that position where they're sprinting back, having to recover. Um, there's, there's something that isn't going right there in your decision making because you want the, I mean, ultimately, if you are playing with two sixes, you want the, the ball to be in front of them. So they're, you know, they have their back line behind them instead of sprinting towards their back line, trying to recover. So I think that's one of the things that, um, I don't know off the top of my head why that always happens. I think because of what we just said, when you're constantly dribbling into space or trying to get into in between those lines, then there's transition moments that maybe put you in um, a higher press and then you're having to recover if you get beat. So um, that is really, I would say, in order to be elite, you need to figure that out and make sure you're not constantly in those uh, positions where you're recovering at a recovery um, in a recovery run. I think for me, one of the most underrated and really hard for me to identify with concepts in soccer is how to move as a unit defensively. 
you have to be so aware of everything that's going on without you. You have to stay connected with your teammates in whatever line you're in, as well as the lines in front of you and behind you. You have to shift and be aware of where opponents are as well. And you have to use so many yeah. different reference points while also checking to make sure, and this is the thing I want to highlight, checking to make sure that you can block off passing angles. Because if you're a foot or a yard to the right or to the left or forward or backward, and you've just created a passing angle, a whole line's gotten bypassed. And, and you've created, for the other team, a chance for them to drive forward. And I just, I don't even understand how you learn to do that. And I just don't have experience doing that. So with that big caveat of me not knowing exactly how that's done, it seems to me that when I watch Kubo, he doesn't always know the right spots to be in defensively to block off passing angles. And a lot of people use the phrase learning how to read the game, right? And that's kind of ambiguous. And so I thought that and wanted to get more specific here. I think that's the part of the game he's still learning to read defensively is exactly where to be to prevent easy progressive movements from the other team. And I, I think that's a weakness. And it's it's almost been a weakness for all of Cincinnati at times this year. And they've gotten a little better. They're climbing up the Eastern Conference table, which is great. But I think for Kubo, it, it's right now, looking at him in a more macro way, it's hard to see him as this game-changing number six or even a, a super good option as part of that double pivot that Yabstam has been mostly rocking with or even as a central midfielder, even as an eight. It's hard for me to see him as this great option because he doesn't bring a lot on the ball outside of his dribbling and he, he doesn't bring a lot outside of his work rate, which is great, but he's not running smart right now. And that's really hard to do. But I mean, that's that's a lot of strikes against him in that spot. I don't know. Maybe since he would be better served with someone else there, maybe they wouldn't. I'm not about to judge that. But I, I think there's more to be improved for Kubo at that spot than there is things that are working right now. I would agree with you. And I think that's a really good breakdown of just being aware of all of the ongoing factors when you are defending as a team and as a unit. It's it's a lot. And, and one little thing goes wrong and it can break down your yeah. whole entire structure. So um, that's a really good point, Joe. Either way, since you're climbing up the table, you've been better. The results are getting better. I mean, they have three three results, four results in their last four games, two wins and two draws. I mean... Yeah, can't be happy with that last result, though. <laughs> True. The crew True. can, but yeah. I mean, for Cincy, that's a tough one. The crew can and Jordan is, and I think that's time for us to move on <laughs> to our next set of questions. Uh, Jordan, I'm kind of looping these two together because they're both Sounders okay. related. So the first one's from a soccer yeah. rabbi. We know him well. He's a good follow on Twitter. How are Seattle this good without Fry and Nuhu and Ladero and Morris? And then this next question is from F. Chateaubriand. I don't know if he just doesn't like Chateaubriand or what the issue is there. But he asks or she asks or whatever, from a tactical formation perspective, what is allowing Seattle to continue its success despite missing half of its starters, including three best 11 players? So that's getting at Soccer Rabbi's question. Does the 3-5-2, or sometimes it looks different than that, but either way, does the shape provide some inherent advantages to plug and play? Is it culture more than tacti tactics, or is it creative roster depth? Jordan, there's a lot to that, and I'm just going to kind of boil it down to how are the Seattle Sounders still good when all of their good players, not true, but a lot of their good players, their best players, are out? What What is going on here, Jordan Angeli? I think first and foremost, and they mentioned this in the question, I think it really is culture. Yeah. And there was recently a piece, I believe it was on the Sounders website, about um, Schmetzer and the next man up mentality and how that's been something that's happened in Seattle since forever, even before they were MLS club, that if you are on that team, you are good enough to play. And if you're the next man up, it is your opportunity and your responsibility to carry that weight. And I do think that culture is such um, 
it, it's hard to grasp. It's hard to build. But when you're building it over that number of years, it really becomes part of who you are. No matter if you're a newcomer to the team or if you've been there forever, you can feel the culture when you, when you talk about Seattle and they are on a run right now of just excellence. It is because they have been building this and it's not just this year. It's, it's over the years. And I do think first and foremost, it really, really is the culture of that squad that allows them to be successful no matter who's on the team. And part of that culture is belief, Joe. I think because Schmetzer says next man up, the coach believes in that player, then his teammates believe in the players next to them. Uh, I think that it is, it's a cool culture and it, it's, it's fun to watch. Um, that come to life, I think, especially right now when you talk about all those players that ha- are absent. The Sounders' undefeated run, because they are undefeated in Major League Soccer this season, Wild has almost almost convinced me more that this club is the best, most well-run club in Major League Soccer, more than appearing in all those MLS Cups, more than lifting that trophy in the last few years. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the right way to look at it, but it, it really has clicked for me. You're still coming out, and you're not dominating every game. Even in the first game of the season, they went 4 nothing against Minnesota United. Minnesota United was the better team in that first half. They're not this all-consuming type of team, but they're getting results. And the culture there, I can't even imagine how strong it is. Now, they're, they're missing a bunch of players to injury, and they're off a bunch of other players off of the Gold Cup. Both, both Roldan brothers are out at the Gold Cup. So you're missing a ton of key players. And you're just chugging along. You're just getting result after result. And it's not going to be undefeated forever. They're not going to stay undefeated forever. But this is what the Sounders do. This is what Brian Schmetzer does. And it's so impressive to me. And it just really has cemented in my mind how incredibly well run this club is and how deep they are. Because for me, looking outside the whole culture thing, the roster is a huge part of it. And Chateaubriand mentions that in their question, right? It's a deep it's a deep roster. I think it is creative roster depth in a lot of ways. And I broke this down into two categories. You've got good veteran buys, good veteran players you've gone in and, and brought into your group. Kellen Rowe, we mentioned him earlier, and I'll turn it to you to talk more about Rowe if you want to because I know you teased it. And then Jimmy Madranda is another guy. He was playing for uh, Tacoma against Phoenix Rising earlier this season. I watched that game, and he was the best player on the field, or one of the better players on the field, certainly for Tacoma. Now he's he's playing for the Sounders, and he's playing well. I mean, they have these veteran players that they can bring in and replace some of the most important players and still have not a huge drop-off. So that's the first half. And then the other half of the creative roster build is just youth that's starting to pop up. And this hasn't always been true for Seattle but Denny Leva started the other night. Josh Atencio started a bunch of games at the beginning of this season. He's still a key player for them. There are other academy kids that are filling out rosters and, and filling out the starting 11, and you're seeing the potential that these guys have. This is just an incredibly well-built roster, and that, for me, is kind of where yeah. this starts. Yeah, even Sissoko came, comes in yeah. and played, played with Tacoma last year and now has started most of the games since June. I would agree with that. Exactly. And those were some of the players that I was going to mention. It's, um, it's Madranda, it's Montero, it's, um, even I, I know Alex Roldan isn't, um, one of these veteran type players, but it's molding this. Yeah. Like, how does Alex Rodon become Alex Rodon? Well, it's inside the training sessions every single day that he then becomes this player that can step in and be the next man up. He is a living example of what the culture in Seattle can create. And I, I think that, um, 
with Kellen Roll, when you have players that leave, to lean on that MLS experience, but also equip um, some of these homegrown players to step in and um, gain gain experience, they can do that because the players around them um, are willing to also carry a little bit of that load if those if those young players aren't uh, quite up to the task, but. But that's the experience that they need to be in those games, to make the mistakes, to recover from the mistakes, all those things. So I do think that they did a really good job. I would say culture and roster building are top two. And a lot of that has to do, as you said, with just who the Seattle Sounders are as a club, Mm. as an organization. And um, I mean, this run has been nothing short of incredible. And we talk a lot about tactics on this show, right? That's kind of the the main beat that we take here. I think there is a, a small tactical element to this, and it's almost it's almost the fact that Seattle doesn't overcomplicate a lot of things. Even the big switch into a back three this season that got talked about a lot, I wrote about it, it made sense, really. And I wasn't sure that knew who would fit that left center back spot, but he does. And Brian Spencer knew that. And, and all the pieces seem to work together very, very well. They don't they don't play this super complicated way. It's pretty straightforward with how they play. And it's not like, oh, you're coming into the lineup and we're building out of the back at all costs. And if you make a mistake, we're going down a goal. It's it's a little bit more practical than that. And that's not a bad thing. It's pragmatic. And that's not a bad thing. I think there's mm-hmm. value when you do have a bunch of players going out for you to have a pretty straightforward way of playing that changes a little bit from game to game, but it, it makes it easier for players coming off the bench to come in and figure out their role. They know their role. They know what to do. And they're not necessarily afraid of making one big mistake and and changing the entire game in a negative way. Mm -hmm. So I think almost the simple-ish tactics has an advantage here as well. And to add to that, there's players on this team who I think you get to this point in a lot of careers and you're like, I am this. I am a number nine or I'm a winger. I am a center midfielder. There's a lot of players on this team who have played and will play multiple yeah. positions. So just think about you, you talk about is it plug and play? Well, no, but if you have Madronda who can play outside back winger and, you know, even a center mid if need sure. be, like maybe a, in a in an outside position in like a diamond, he can he can play multiple positions so that he understands roles for most multiple positions. And I think it's easier then to transition and and say, okay, this is what we're asking for you because you have the ability and the wherewithal to say, all right, I see the game more than I see a position. And there's I, I could go down the list. Madronda, we you mentioned Roe. I think both the Roldans can play multiple positions. Mm-hmm. Um Nuhu can play a, a couple different positions. There's so many players on this roster that are willing to see the game in a different way and have seen the game in a different way because they've played different positions that I think it's that goes back to the roster building but it also goes back to like um, building a culture of saying all right I might not just be this I might be a soccer player who then plays at this position or then plays at this position and I think understanding roles within different formations or different contexts of what is being asked of them is really important and is one of the reasons that the squad succeeds. They're so good. They're filthy good, and they're going to have a bunch of other <laughs> incredible players coming back. At some point, you would think this season that might change yeah. things. It might it might cause a little bump at some point, but either way, it's hard to envision this team not being in play for the Supporter Shield and certainly for a deep run in the MLS Cup playoffs. So, yeah, Seattle, in summary, very, very good at soccer. 
Jordan, we have got one more question. I'm going to I'm going to have you ask this one because I did a lot of the prep for it and then I'll I'll ask you some questions along the way. But hit us with the final question on today's show. Joe, the last question is from our friend Andrew Weeby and I believe it was his birthday over the weekend. Yeah, so, happy, happy belated birthday, birthday Weeby. Weeby. Yeah. Um all right, is Venetia a good place for Tanner Tessman to land? Okay. Legwork here. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do some some of the the background prep stuff. So Venezia just recently promoted to Syria. Uh, they were out of the top flight in Italy for about 20 years, and they have an American owner. So I think that's that's potentially where this connection is coming from. But ESPN's Jeff Carlisle has been all over this story about them being interested in Tessman, and and it looks like that move is going to happen. And so the question is, yeah, from Weeby, is Venezia a good place for Tanner Tessman to land? The, the long, the short answer, I should say, is I have no idea. The long answer is I dug in, I watched a bunch of their footage, and I think, I think it could be a good fit. So offensively, they play quickly. They, they're not Red Bull in how they play. At least they weren't in Serie B. But they do like to play vertically and quickly in possession and find little passing options in midfield, send runners in behind, and attack downhill. They didn't dominate the ball last season in Serie B, but they do get numbers forward and all, all the kind of classic uh, possession stuff. It's it's not rocket science at this point, but formation wise, they played a lot of four three three. That that was the shape I saw them in most often, in almost every game. They typically play with one six and two eights. Tessman, who has played the six and the eight in the past, you think okay, there's three spots for him. That could be a good sign, and that's one bit of encouragement for me. If they decide to keep, if their their coach, thirty eight year old Italian Paolo Zanetti, decides to stick with that shape going into Serie A, which is not a guarantee, I should say. Then there's three spots for Tessman to fight for. Busio also has been reported or rumored to uh, maybe be headed to Venezia as well. So there are spots in midfield. Defensively, they pressed some last year, uh, but I don't think they'll be doing a whole lot of that in Serie A as a newly promoted team. And that, for me, the fact that they're newly promoted is the, the part I'm having the most trouble with for Tessman. Because, I mean, Jordan, imagine imagine making that move, right? It's got to be still a kind of an unstable environment. And sure, there's a lot of positive momentum and, and belief and all that stuff, but you don't know where you're going to be a year from then, right? Tessman moves and, and maybe he's getting minutes and I think he's got a good chance to certainly to get more minutes than he's getting for Dallas right now. He's not really playing all that much. So kind of why not go and make this move? But you don't really know how this team's going to stack up to the competition in Serie A. They might be defending almost every game and back defending. And that maybe not the most ideal place to go. So I have some reservations about this move just because of the unique situation that Venezia is in being promoted. I still think go. That's my view, at least. Again, because you're not playing for Dallas, why not, right? Venezia has some central midfielders, but it's possible you can compete for that spot and, and actually get minutes, which you're not getting. So kind of why not? So I think, Weeby, I guess my answer is yes, as I'm talking out loud here, but it's not the perfect place for him to be. At least I don't think so. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I got really just distracted in that, just thinking about a Serie A team with two American teenage midfielders playing in it <laughs> when you were talking about Tessman and Busio. Can you imagine? It'd be cool, right? It'd be super cool. It'd be super Inle- cool. Unless, unless um, they're taking minutes from each other, which I don't like, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Well, that, I mean, they would have to be playing. I think you'd play one as the six, Busio, and you put Tessman as Of course, as a, yeah. An eight. So there you go. I Fixed mean, it. I just, I, I got distracted about that. So I did hear most of what you said. And I would agree with, I don't know if it's the best spot, but I think that the way that you maybe find the best spot sometimes is just making the move and, and yeah. trying. And, and, you mentioned, okay, you're transitioning it from 
the second to the first league. And what's that going to mean for your team? What's that going to mean for your organization? There might be opportunities there to learn more about who you are as a player and the fact that, well, if you're defending more, well, you have to get better at your defending if you're going to defend more. So that might be a benefit to his overall game, which then leads him to whatever the next step is or being more successful in Serie A. So I think that, I mean, you're right. If you're not getting playing time, might as well go. And yeah. especially when you're going to um, one of the, the top leagues in the world. Yeah. And Tessman, to go back to our first question, I guess, is a guy that could benefit from Brian Acosta being away at the Gold Cup yeah. as well. So maybe that. he does start getting minutes, but either way, I mean, I think he's already in Italy if if reports are to be believed. So I think I think this oh. one's pretty much done at this point. I know this is just a hard question. I was like, that's question. so full circle by I know. It would have been perfect, but it's not. <laughs> I, I just know neither one of us are fully sold on Tanner Testament as a player right now. He's 19, and so he's young, and he's raw, and he's tall, and he's got this weird build for a soccer player. And so I want to give him time, obviously. I'm not saying he's not going to be a good player. But between Venezia's unique situation coming up to the first division and, and Tessman and me not really having the best read on his game, I think he could be a very good player. But I just have a lot of questions right now about where he goes and what is the right step for him. But like you said, Jordan, there's no reason not to try. Go see what happens. You'll learn about yourself as a person, as a player. It'll be an incredible experience. Their stadium is awesome. It's right on the water. Mm. There's so many cool mm. parts of this story. I wish Tanner Tussman... Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll fly out if someone wants to pay for that. <laughs> um, I wish Tanner Tussman nothing but the best with this, with this yeah. move, which could totally work out or it, it could bomb. And that's the way life goes sometimes. Also, Dallas is just slinging players. <laughs> just everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, if, if you need anyone, luck. if you need anyone, Dallas is uh, willing to sell. Pepe as well is coming up now, and he's been good for the last couple weeks for Dallas. Mm-hmm. Jesus Ferreira. I he mean, really has. The list goes on and on, just like this episode has, Jordan. We've gone a little bit Gosh, long. Gosh, we talked for a long time. Let's get out of here, man. Jordan, thank you okay. for, for joining me and for talking soccer. It is always a joy. Yeah, and great questions, you guys. Thanks for uh, following along, and we hope you enjoy this one. Boom. <laughs>